continuing to read Luke 2, verses 8 to 21. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all these things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Thank you, Peter. Thank you so much for reading those two parts of Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 2. Before we think about this passage of Scripture, let's ask God to help us. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the very, very familiar words that we've heard read once more. The story of the birth of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, as we think about this story once more, we pray that you would help us to understand it well and see its relevance and its significance for people living in 2016. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, it, in spite of the worst efforts of both Storm Barbara and also Storm Connor, we are set to have one of the mildest Christmases for many, many years this year. I hope you're looking forward to it, getting your swimming costume sorted out so that you can make the most of the balmy Christmas weather we've got to look forward to. It may mean, however, that we find it very difficult to recognize or relate to the words of our last carol. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. It's one of Britain's most loved carols, I'm told. Each year, Classic FM conduct a poll of the nation's favorite carols, and this year, in the bleak midwinter, actually managed to get into the top ten twice. 
Not quite sure how you do that, but it came on not only at third place, but also at sixth place. Apparently it's something to do with the fact there's more than one tune for the carol. It's a popular carol, but it's not one that everyone entirely appreciates. Some people feel that it is, you know, overdoes the romanticization of the Christmas story, and other people find it perhaps just a little bit too saccharine for their taste. Well, that's as maybe. Whatever you think of it as a carol, there's no denying that Christina Rossetti got at least one thing absolutely right. The world that Jesus was born into wasn't a pleasant one. Jesus wasn't born into a Christmas card. You know, we've got lots of Christmas cards in my house. And, well, you've got pictures of all sorts of things. But we must have pushing on about ten Christmas cards which depict the scene in the stable. And you know what the stable looks like in Christmas cards, don't you? It's light. It's bright. It's tranquil, peaceful, welcoming. And it's unbelievably clean. Rossetti knew better. The world into which Jesus was born was none of those things. The world that Jesus was born into was a bleak midwinter. It was a bleak time for the world. Most of the known world at the time that Jesus was born was part of the Roman Empire. Now, while the Roman Empire may have had its good points, uh, the Roman Empire could also be brutal. Rome was a militaristic state. Their solution to just about any problem that came up was violence, preferably extreme violence. The idea of a good time for Roman citizens was watching blood sports in the arena. Dissent was put down ruthlessly. While some may well have done well out of the Roman Empire, for the ordinary person in that empire, life was likely to be poor, nasty, brutish, and short. It was a bleak time to be in the world when Jesus was born. And it was a bleak time for Israel. Once more, Israel found itself an occupied land. Uh, We know all about the Roman approach to collecting taxes from the story of Zacchaeus, with ordinary people at the mercy of corrupt tax collectors. We all know know about the, the puppet king Herod that the Romans had installed from Matthew's Gospel, and the brutal and almost irrational fear he had of political threat. Our reading begins with the Roman authorities conducting a census and everyone in Israel having to drop whatever they were doing and find their way to their their city of birth in order to comply with this bureaucratic requirement. The people of Israel were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. It was a bleak time for Israel. And it was a bleak time to be a shepherd. In New Testament times, shepherds weren't noble or romantic figures. They had a poor reputation. The religious people looked down on them. They had a reputation for dishonesty. In fact, so poor was their reputation that they were not allowed to give testimony in a course of law. That's what people thought of shepherds at the time of Jesus. Their work was hard. Sheep had to be watched. They couldn't be left to their own devices. Sheep had to be protected. There were predators. Sheep had to be rescued. The hills were full of hazards. And it was cold on the hills at night. It was a bleak time to be a shepherd. And it was a bleak time to be Joseph and Mary. 
Everything we know about this couple tells us that theirs was a life of poverty. A little later on in Luke chapter 2, we read of what happened when they went to the Jerusalem to perform religious rites in connection with the birth of their firstborn. It involved offering a sacrifice, and the sacrifice that they offered were a couple of doves or two young pigeons, the offering reserved for the very poorest of people. We don't even know that Jesus was born in a stable. All that we know was that he was laid in a feeding trough. It could well have been in an open courtyard exposed to the elements. In fact, everything we know about the circumstances of Jesus' birth point to obscurity, poverty, and rejection. There was no room at the inn or anywhere else. It was a bleak time in which to be born. And 2,000 years on, little has changed. Our world can still be a very bleak place. You don't need me to tell you that there are still vast numbers of people in the world who live under totalitarian regimes. The census that forced Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And in 2016, Syria has a particular resonance, does it not? In the immediate aftermath of the fall of Aleppo, men, women, and children found themselves, like the shepherds, spending the night in the open with temperatures well below zero. In our cities, there are people sleeping rough, probably tonight, for whom there is no room in an inn or anywhere else. And even if we're not sleeping rough, even if we don't live in a war zone, There are many aspects of life that are hard and difficult. There is so much sadness in the world, families at odds with each other, disputes between neighbors, people who find their workplaces miserable. There are people who know so much loss, so much bleak midwinter. And why would God send his son into a world like that. You wouldn't send somebody you cared for into a war zone, would you? You wouldn't send somebody you were cared for into a situation where you, where you knew they could be forced to find themselves to sleep rough, to face prejudice and opposition, and possibly end up dying the death of a criminal. If that was a choice you were given, you probably wouldn't opt for it, would you? Why would God send his son into a world like that. Because men and women need to be rescued from the bleak midwinter. And while the whole of Luke's gospel is about God sending his son into the real world in all its bleakness, it's about to bring the news of a glorious rescue. The Christmas story, when you think about it, is full of the supernatural. It's full of the miraculous, extraordinary events and happenings intended to make it very clear that the birth was special and significant. Rossetti picks up that idea in her, in her carol when she speaks of angels and archangels gathering there, cherubim and seraphim thronging the air. And of course, as well as the angels that appear to the shepherds, we have angels appearing to all sorts of people. We have people being struck dumb out of the blue and then regaining their speech just as unexpectedly. 
And of course, the most striking thing is the circumstances of Jesus' conception, which is quite clearly neither normal nor natural. If you're into portents, then this baby is surrounded by them, underlining the fact that there is something unbelievably significant and important about this baby Jesus. But in what way? What is the significance? What is the importance? Well, the great thing about Christmas is that God doesn't leave us to work it out all for ourselves. It's not a puzzle where we have to try and figure out what it means. No, God explains what's going on. And he doesn't save it for the elite, for kings, for princes, for intellectuals. He reveals the details of this glorious rescue to ordinary people, like shepherds, like those disliked, like those looked down upon shepherds in the hills overlooking Bethlehem. And as the angels bring God's news of this baby to the shepherds, uh, we're told four things about this glorious rescue. The first thing we're told about this glorious rescue is that it's for everyone. The reason why God spoke to the shepherds, people at the bottom of the heap, was because the angel wanted everybody to know that this was for everybody. Not just for one racial group or or just the educated or the privileged or the virtuous or the religious. You may be none of those things, but even so, Jesus is still for you. It's for all people, wherever, whenever, whatever, however they are. But secondly, Jesus is a saviour. You know, in today's world, there are an astonishing number of organizations and groups who are actually into the business of saving this, that, or the next thing. Whether it's the rainforests or the West Pier, people want to save it. It's amazing that in such a secular society, so many people are looking for saviors. And what the angels had to declare to the shepherds sitting on those hills was that Jesus was a saviour. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. But not just any saviour. This baby Jesus is going to be a very special saviour. Because the angel uses a very unusual combination of words to describe just who this saviour is. Did you notice that at the end of verse 11... The angels speak about him being the Messiah, the Lord. Now, the Messiah is a Hebrew word. The Greek equivalent is the word Christ. And what it meant was an anointed person, someone specially appointed by God for a special task. However, in the Old Testament, um, God had predicted that he would send a supreme deliverer specially chosen by God to rescue his people and deliver them. And the Jews had come to call that person in particular that they were expecting, not a Messiah, but the Messiah, someone that God was going to send to them. And what the angels were saying to the shepherds was, you can stop waiting. My supreme deliverer, the Messiah, he has come to you at last. But there was more. Because the angel just doesn't say that Jesus is the Messiah. He also says that Jesus is the Lord. Now that was a Greek word. It was the Greek translation for the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. 
In other words, the angel was saying, not only is the Messiah coming, but God is coming. Someone uniquely and completely equipped to bring the deliverance that the world needs. Uniquely qualified to be the saviour that the world needs. The person who actually has the power and the authority and the ability to address the challenge of the bleak midwinter in which humanity finds itself. By combining these two titles, the angel is making it clear that this was a truly special one. But finally, the angel says one more thing about this this Messiah. He says that this Savior is going to bring peace. Do you remember the final words of the angel now joined by a choir of angels to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You know, as we think about those things that people want to savor a few minutes ago, what is it that the human heart wants more than anything else? Is it not peace? Is it not that feeling of being at ease with the world, your neighbors, yourself, and your maker? And isn't that the most elusive thing to find? You know, there are many things that people want to save, and after a lot of struggle, they manage to realize it. But gaining peace and keeping peace, that calls for more than a pressure group and an action group, does it not? What we most need is deliverance from our fears about the past, about the present, about the future. And that is what Jesus, this very special Savior, has come to make possible. One of the things that Luke will make clear is that that peace begins with peace with God. Peace to those on whom God's favor rests. That's the starting point. Indeed, there is no promise of peace to those who have no interest in finding peace with God, who live their lives as if God doesn't exist or never sent his special savior. So how do we respond to this glorious news? Well, Luke suggests two very practical examples of what each one of us can do. I mean, what did the shepherds do? In verse 16, we read that they dropped everything, hurried off to see what God had done. They wanted to see for themselves. They wanted to find out more about it. You know, at Christmas, it's very easy to to let the season just wash around you. Why not take time to have a more thorough look for yourself about what Christmas is truly all about? The shepherds sought to find out more. And what did Mary do? In verse 19, we are told that she treasured all these things in her heart and pondered them in her heart. In other words, she took time to remember and to think about it. And each one of us can make time over Christmas, the Christmas holiday. You know, you're off work. You've got all the time in the world. Uh, You know, you can make time to think about what has happened, what God did through Jesus. You can find out more. You can take time to think about it. 
But at some point, we all need to move beyond thinking and looking and come to some kind of a decision. And here, Christina Rossetti poses the key question. What can I give him? Now, like the shepherds, yes, we can give something of our possessions. Like the wise men, yes, we can offer something of our talents and abilities. But God is looking for more. Yet, what I can I give him? Give my heart. We don't really talk like that very much these days, do we? I mean, what do we mean when we talk about giving our heart to Jesus, giving our heart to God? Well, if you go to Fleet Street, the area of London that used to be the heart of the British newspaper industry, just by Ludgate Circus, there's a memorial to Edgar Wallace. Edgar Wallace was a writer and a journalist who died in 1931. The inscription on his memorial finishes with these words. Of his talents, he gave lavishly to authorship. But to Fleet Street, he gave his heart. In his time, Edgar Wallace was an astonishingly successful writer who wrote and sold a staggeringly large number of novels. It was said when he was at his peak that every fourth novel read by anybody in Britain was written by Edgar Wallace. Sadly, his novels haven't really stood the test of time. To be perfectly honest with you, they weren't terribly good. But they were unbelievably popular. But journalism, journalism, that's where his heart was. He loved the newspaper industry. It was to Fleet Street that he gave his heart he wrote the books because he lived a profligate lifestyle and built up enormous debts. He wrote because he needed the money. He didn't write because he particularly enjoyed it or liked it. He wrote because he had to. But when it came to journalism, when he came to newspapers, he loved it. He loved everything about it. It was to Fleet Street that he gave his heart. And I believe we can all understand that. People in dull jobs who live for playing sport at the weekend, or singing in a choir, or walking in the hills, or spending time with their families. It's to their sport. It's to their families. It's to their outside interests that they give their heart. And that's the invitation we have when it comes to Jesus. That's the invitation we have when we think about the Christmas story. It's about God's glorious rescue by Jesus from the bleak winter in which each one of us finds ourselves living and we suffer to greater or lesser extents from the consequences of that bleak midwinter. Yet what can I give him? Give my heart? We can all do that. Amen.